All right. Well, we're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of John, and we are starting chapter 4 today. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is a well, well-known chapter. It is where we meet the living water, the living water. Um, I, I showed you these, these sort of little booklets when we started the, the Gospel of John. This is, um, well, it's, a, it's, it's the whole book of John in a little pamphlet. Um, and um, the makers of this particular pamphlet titled it Living Water. There it is. Um, and we have a bunch of those on the table out there. If you'd like to have one, they're, they're, they're for you. They're free. You can take one um, to, to be yours. But I just wanted to read a little section from this to begin with. Um, I've, I've made reference to parts of this before. But this is just something the writers have written in here. It says this, the emphasis throughout on the, in the book of John is on the free gift of eternal life offered to those who believe. And we've, we've been seeing that, haven't we? Almost every chapter contains both an invitation to believe and a reason to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Savior. In fact, the word believe occurs nearly 100 times to reinforce this main point. So for many believers in Jesus Christ, John's gospel was their first exposure to the life-changing truths of God's word. It was from these pages that God quenched their thirst for living water the eternal life Christ offers to those who will receive it. No wonder Christians love this book so. It is God's inspired introduction to his son. This is a book which leads to the faith in God's son, which brings eternal life. We have um, uh, re-seen several times John's purpose in writing this found in chapter 20, verse uh, 31, right? That John wrote this whole thing so that people would believe in Jesus as the son of God and by believing have eternal life. And so uh, in today's passage in in chapter uh, four, we get to see Jesus having another encounter encounter, uh, with a a different individual. In fact, it's it's quite a striking contrast to the the last person Jesus had an encounter with, and that was Nicodemus in chapter three. And Nicodemus was, if you remember, a respected ruler, right? A religious uh, ruler. Yet here, Jesus is going to meet an outcast, Nicodemus was presumably a moral Jew. Here he's going to meet an immoral Samaritan. Nicodemus was wealthy. This woman is poor. Jesus was recognized by by Nicodemus as a, a teacher sent from God. This woman has no clue who he is. Nicodemus was learned in religious matters. This woman is, is very ignorant about religious matters. And so we have these these people at the, the opposite ends of the spectrum, I guess, if you will. Yet despite all of those differences that they have, the religious elite on one end and sort of this woman of the world on the other, they both needed the same thing. That's why John places it here. They both are in need of the same thing. This, this man who thought he knew everything there was to know about religion needed eternal life. All he had accomplished and all he had accumulated had not actually get, got him the thing he was looking for, entrance into the kingdom of God. On the opposite end, we're going to see an immoral uh, woman who couldn't be farther from the truth, yet she is in no different place than that man. She needs to be born again. And if you recall, um, this, 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 this last time we met Nicodemus was in chapter, uh, chapter 3, something has taken place in between. We've actually seen a little bit of an interlude for several weeks, if not several months, in terms of what Jesus has done and where he's gone. 
And so we're going to begin just by setting up uh, what's taken place. These are the circumstances that, to begin with here in chapter, uh, chapter 4 at the beginning. But we'll read through the whole passage, and then we'll look at what's taken place, and we'll jump into the, the meat of the passage. We're going to look at John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I might, that I might not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. The one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. God, we just pray today for your blessing upon your word. What an incredible encounter that we get to witness today. And we have much to, to learn from you today on this. So God, would you just open our hearts and open our minds to receive what you have for us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I got that same shudder when I read that as well. Because you probably noticed, Jesus has not said something like that yet. I am he has not happened, um, yet he cho chooses to reveal that truth to some random woman that he meets at a well. But let's jump into this, shall we? We have some circumstances we have to set up first. If you look at verses 1 to 3, it said this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. If you recall, in last week's study, Jesus and John were both engaging in similar 
baptism ministries. They were in close proximity to one another. Perhaps John might have been in more in the Samaria area. Jesus was certainly in Judea. But they both proclaimed uh, the kingdom of God and they called uh, for repentance. And those who, who repented were, were baptized. And uh, if you remember, some of John's disciples were a little uh, concerned about Jesus' growing popularity and their waning popularity. And so they complained to John about it. And John's answer in verse 30 of chapter 3 really summed up the entire passage. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. John's point of view was that um, and nobody's given anything that, that didn't come from heaven to begin with, so it's all his. So I'm just going to be faithful to use what he's given me for the time that I have to use it. And so Jesus is getting more popular. That's great. That's what I came to do. I'm the voice. I'm the one preparing the way. I'm the herald. He's the king. Don't pay much attention to the herald. Go to the king. And so he is fine with just sort of receding into the background. But Jesus, we get to see Jesus' reaction here because we didn't really see his reaction um, to that. Here we find something new that Jesus... um, finds out that that news got to the Pharisees. And they're hearing about Jesus' popularity and John's increasingly less significant popularity. And I think Jesus doesn't want a couple of things. I think he doesn't want a public rivalry to develop between himself and and John, where people start to take sides. That's never a good thing uh, there. But also, and I think maybe even more importantly, Jesus has been operating and is always operating on his Father's divine plan. You know, it's, it's God's timetable and a confrontation with the Jewish authorities in this early period of Jesus's ministry would, would, be, um, would, would not be good. It would be premature. So I think Jesus just leaves the, the area and we're told that he leaves Judea and he's going to uh, Galilee. And in verse four, we're told he needed to go through Samaria. Now, this is interesting. Um, um, he, he does need to go through Samaria in, in a sense um, because Samaria is located bet- between Judea and Galilee. So he, in, in a sense, you have to go through there. But it's not true that he needed to pass through Samaria at a geographic necessity. Uh, you will see he's, in, he's been in Jerusalem. He's gone into the Judean wilderness, and that's where he's been doing his ministry. And you can see Samaria is in between Judea and Galilee. And uh, clearly, the straightest line between the two points would be to go through Samaria. But however, most Jews avoided Samaria. They would take this eastern route, cross into a Gentile region of Perea to go around Samaria and come back in. So to say that he needed to go through there is not necessarily true. I don't think Jesus needed to go through there out of geographic necessity. He needed to go through there because he had a divine appointment, an appointment at a well. In John chapter 6, verse 38, we're told this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is constantly saying that I've come here to do his will. So he does need to go to Samaria to get to Galilee, but he's got an appointment, and that's why he's going uh, there. He wasn't concerned about getting from point A to point B in the quickest amount of time. He was concerned with fulfilling the will of the Father. And the will of the Father for Jesus um, was that he would be testified in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We read about that in Acts 1.8, right? So Samaria would be one of those areas that Jesus would be testified about. And just as another uh, note too, Samaria was the capital city, if you recall, of the northern kingdom of, of Israel. So when Israel had split back in Solomon's day, 
uh, that would have been the capital uh, city in that time. King Omri is the one that named that city. But after time, it just became known as the region of Samaria, even though there was an initial uh, capital uh, city. And that's important. We're going to talk about more about that and uh, more about why the Jews chose to go uh, around it. But we'll get to that in a moment. Let's look at verse 5. We're just setting up the circumstances here. Verse 5 says, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, uh, Joseph. Uh, this site is actually well known today, even. Uh, it's been identified as Akar or Askar. It's a modern, uh, modern city uh, there. And the well that is talked about in verse 6 has also been uh, identified uh, famously as a, a famous site. In fact, it's, it's, uh, archaeologists say it's the deepest well uh, in all of Palestine. So that's very uh, interesting. So he, he, he came to that area. Verse 6 says Jacob's well uh, was there. And Jesus, therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the uh, sixth hour. So a couple of things about this, this bit there. Jacob, uh, back in Genesis chapter 33, had purchased that piece of land for 100 pieces of, of silver. I think it just says pieces of money in the Genesis uh, account. But later in in Joshua, it tells us pieces of, of silver. Um, and that was after 20 years in Haran. So if you remember the Jacob's whole account there, and he stole the birthright from Esau, and he fled from Esau, he went to Haran, he's there for 20 years, and then he comes back, and that's when he purchases that piece of, of land. And then later, he bequeaths the land to Joseph and to Joseph's uh, children in Genesis chapter uh, 48. Uh, and then in Joshua chapter 24, moving way down the timeline, we learn that Joseph's bones... Uh, while he died in Egypt, were carried with the, the children of Israel into the promised land, and he was buried there. His bones were. So my point in setting all that up is that this is a very well-known site to both Jews and Samaritans. Jacob's well is there, the land that J- Jacob purchased. It's his, and Joseph's bones are, are, are there. So this is a, a very important place geographically uh, for them. And I also love that it just tells us that Jesus was wearied from his journey. It does remind us that uh, while Jesus was without sin, he was still subject to the physical limitations that we, we face ourselves. He was tired. Jesus got tired, yes. Um, and so he, he sat down by the well. And it tells us it was about the sixth hour. We've been going off the Jewish reckoning of the time, and so that would uh, me make this uh, about noon, in the heat of the day. So that's the circumstances. We're ready for our encounter. It begins in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here we have Jesus sitting alone at the well, and a woman comes out to draw water. And normally these women would come out to draw water. The women did that job. Uh, Sorry about that, but they're the ones that carried the heavy burden of the water from the well. But they would come and do that at the cool of the evening. Um, We see that back in Genesis as well. But this woman doesn't come at the cool of the evening. She comes at high noon. And she finds Jesus there. Why does she come at noon? We're going to see that in uh, a bit. But what's amazing about this is that Jesus speaks to her. And that shatters quite a few barriers. For one, um, he was a man and she was a woman. Now, just the normal prejudices of the day, out in public, men and women did not speak. They did not have conversations in public. That wasn't even normal for a husband and a wife, much less uh, a stranger Uh, and a woman. Secondly, he's a Jew, and she's a Samaritan. That breaks down some barriers as well. Thirdly, notice that he asks for a drink, but he has nothing to draw the water from. And that breaks down a barrier as well, because 
um, he is basically essentially saying he is, he is, as a Jew, he's willing to defile himself ceremonially by drinking out of this Samaritan, Samaritan's uh, vessel for water because he didn't have his own. And all of those things would just have been unheard of. Uh, and, and so this is a pretty big event. Um, I will add, though, um, Jesus would not have been ceremonial unclean, right? He wouldn't, he wouldn't have been tainted had he drank from that. If you recall, any person that was diseased, any person that was dead, when he touched, they became clean. Okay, so he would not have any danger of that, but that was in the Jewish mind that they would, uh, they would be defiled if they, if they did that. That was not in Jesus' mind. I just wanted to add that. But verse 9 tells us uh, this. This is shocking to the woman, and this is her response. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There is a, a bitter rivalry here. Um, what's not clear about this passage um, is, is where the, the, the woman's comment and John, the author's comment, ends and begins. She says clearly that you're a Jew and you're asking me for a, a drink. But then the comment is added seemingly from, from the author, John, because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And I think that's probably uh, right. I don't think the woman would need to have to have said that because clearly. But John, the author, is adding that caveat here to say this is why this is a big deal. Because historically, the Jews didn't interact with the Samaritans. Why? Where does this come from? Well, it goes back centuries. And I have to take you there so you can see it. It's in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 23 and 24. So go way back to the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 17, 23 and 24. We're going to look at several verses in, in chapter 17. But this is a pretty big, big deal. And this is a... A long and bitter rivalry. Back in chapter 17, verses 20. We'll start in actually verse 22. That'll just be a little bit better. It says this. 2 Kings, chapter 17. Make sure you're in 2 Kings. You'll be lost if you're in 1 Kings. <laughs> verse 22. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until... The Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. So that's northern kingdom of Israel. And if you remember, they were conquered in 722 BC by Assyria. They were taken away into captivity because of their sins in idolatry. Verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. What has happened here? He has taken, the king has taken the Jewish people out of, and not all of them. He's taken some off to captivity. And then he's taken his own people and placed them into the region of Samaria. And the Syrians, this is how they did this. They, they wanted to sort of intermingle, get their people to infiltrate that culture. Um, in, on their own turf and in, in their land. And so these foreign non-Jews then intermingled and intermarried with the remaining Jewish population. And what came from that was this mixed breed, right? They weren't pure uh, Jews. And in that mixed race, uh, well, they became known as Samaritans. It was the area of Samaria. But these new settlers that came in brought their idolatrous religions with them. And what happened is that their worship of these false idols mingled 
with the worship of Yahweh. And I want you to see that. Look at verse, uh, verse 25. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which, some, which killed some of them. <laughs> verse 26. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you've removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they, don't, they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. So you see his solution, right? So God has punished them by sending lions in, in there, and they've been killed. And so they cry out to the king, saying, uh, There is a God in this area, and we're not fearing him, and he's punishing us. So the king's solution is, okay, let's bring back one of those priests we took to captivity, and he can teach him how to fear the God of the land. Very simple solution. Verse 20, uh, 28. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. Skip down to verse 33. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods, according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried. And then you go to the end of the account in verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. So that was really the big problem. Not only did they intermingle in, in, in terms of, and become a mixed race, it became a mixed religion. They feared the Lord, yet they still worshipped these other, they, they, they had this pseudo-religion here. They kind of fear the Lord, sort of worshiping Yahweh, at the same time, these false um, gods of the land. Later, if you go to the book of Ezra, it's a, just a right-hand turn from here, so you're going to pass First and Second Chronicles, and then you come to Ezra, chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4. Very interesting thing happens. This is, this is just all to set this up so you understand where this uh, deep-seated hatred comes from, why someone would be willing to, to go around an entire region to not go into the area of Samaria. Uh, this is after the southern kingdom is conquered, goes into captivity to Babylon, and they're allowed to go return to build the temple again in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? And they're doing that under the leadership of, of Ezra and, and, and Nehemiah as well. And look at, at chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we've sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Who are these people asking to help build the temple? Samaritans. Oh yeah, we want to build the temple too. Uh, we're, we're, we, we fear the Lord too. We were brought here from the king of Assyria. And so we want to be part of what you're doing. But Ezra very wisely understands that they don't really fear God. They don't really serve him. They've become a mixed race and a mixed religion. And so look at what he says to them. Verse 3, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers, houses of Israel, said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Verse 4, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah they troubled them in building. They weren't happy with that response. And as a result of that rejection, years later, they end up building their own temple. They build their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which we find in Deuteronomy chapter 
uh, chapter 11, if you remember the blessings and the curses, right? They're supposed to put the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curses on Mount Ebal. Well, the Samaritans went and built their own temple on Mount uh, Gerizim. Later, during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jews destroyed that temple. So this has not been helping the situation, right? That This has worsened. So when we come to the New Testament now, they hated each other. Jews would not step foot. Those are a defiling people. In fact, I'm going to go into a Gentile region of Perea, right, over stepping one foot into Samaria. They did not like each other one bit. So go back to John chapter 4. This is a bad, bad rivalry. And the woman is surprised. You're talking to me. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. That doesn't happen. Now look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I just love his response. Is Jesus concerned about this rivalry at all? Not at all. In fact, he's not even paying attention to that. He says, if you, if you actually knew who it was who was speaking to you, he's turning the tables, really. You know, you're, you're shocked at the fact that I'm speaking to you. But if you really knew who was, your, your shock would be infinitely greater, right? If you knew God was speaking to you, you'd be really shocked. You're just shocked that a, that a man is talking to a woman because that's just not supposed to happen. And you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. And if you remember, Jesus is going to be interacting with people, but John chapter 1 set up who this Jesus was. This is the word. This is the light that brings life to all men. This is the Jesus that's full of grace and truth. And we, I said, keep, keep a watch as, as how, how people interact with this person because we as the reader know all this, but the people that he encounters don't know. She doesn't have a clue who he is at all. And so Jesus turns the tables on her in this whole conversation. First, he was the thirsty one, right? And he asks for water, but then he sort of presents a different scenario. He spoke as if she were the thirsty one, and she was the one that should be asking for water. I love it. She should be asking for water. He says, if you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? Is it not grace, right? We define it that, that way. It's God's grace. Who is, who is it that's speaking to her? Well, it's the one that's the bearer of that grace, Jesus. So this is what Jesus is talking about. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew that God is the one that gives grace, and who, who is speaking to you, the one that's the bearer of that grace, you'd be asking for it. You'd be saying, give me some of that. But he doesn't say grace. That would be a hard concept, wouldn't it? What are you talking about? We do this with Christianese stuff all the time. This is a, great, this is a handbook for us on how to evangelize someone uh, where they are at. He says instead, living water. I love it, living water. What's she there to do? Draw some water. Okay, I'll meet her where she's at. I'll speak to her on terms where she can understand what I'm talking about. What is this living water? And guess what? Does she ask about the gift of God? No. Does she ask about who she, he is? No. What does she ask about? The living water. That's the, that's the part that catches her attention. Oh, you're talking about water. I know that. I'll go off of that. So look at her response in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Living water, that is an interesting concept. And as I presented already, Jesus is using it as a way to sort of get, lead her into understanding. But it's very similar to what Jesus talked to Nicodemus about. Do you remember talking to Nicodemus? Nicodemus was the learned man. Remember, he knew all the facts. He knew everything. And Jesus calls him the carpet and says, well, actually, you don't know everything. You need to be born of the water and the spirit. 
and it's something he should have known because he was referring to Old Testament cleansing, spiritual cleansing. We read these verses, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. I'll put it up again. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Is he really talking about literal water? No, he isn't. He's talking about the spiritual cleansing that would uh, come to him through the Holy Spirit. We read through Ezekiel chapter 36 as well. And those are things as a teacher of the law, as a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus should have understood. He should have understood that. Now he's talking about the same thing. Does the woman need anything different? No, she needs the same spiritual cleansing. She needs living water. But he's speaking to her in, in a way that she can understand this. Look what she says in verse uh, 12, she, she actually goes even further. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Now the woman's pretty far off now, isn't she? Right? Uh, where, where do you get water? I don't see anything in your hand. How, you, how are you going to get water? You're going to give me water. That doesn't make sense. In addition, this is Jacob's well. This is Jacob's well. So you're saying, let me just get this straight, uh, stranger. You have water that's better than the water that comes from Jacob's well. After all, it's Jacob's well, right? Because that's clearly better water. Do you see what I'm saying? We do that all the time, you guys. We do. Like, if, if, I can just get, if I can get some of that holy oil, right, that the Pope has, or maybe it comes from the Vatican, or we have, some, we have those kind of things, people selling stuff. This is the better. This, listen, he is going to crush that kind of thinking, Right? But her mind is there. This is Jacob's well, right? There's not a better water you're going to get anywhere because it's Jacob. Well, Jacob is rightly revered. He should be, he, he should be honored. Um, but she has no idea who she's speaking to. In fact, are you greater than our father Jacob? Yes, he could say. <laughs> Infinitely so. Infinitely so. But Jesus doesn't bother getting into these uh, little uh, arguments. He's trying to get to the heart of the matter here. He says you need, you need living water. Jeremiah refers to this in chapter 2. And I love how he, he gives us this picture in terms of the water that we need. It's Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 5 and 13 I put up here for you. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me that you have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two things people have done wrong, he says. They don't turn to me, the one that is the fountain of living waters. And in addition to that, they go build their own cisterns, but they actually don't hold any water. Not a drop. Nothing. They've turned away from the one that should be venerated, the one we should look at as holy and above us, and we go and create our own ways, don't we? We create our own things, and we think, okay, this is going to hold water here. But the end, it's not going to hold anything. We tend to do that. We tend to venerate people and places to a, a holy status when no one is holy except God. I was just in the land of cathedral this week because we had a visitor in town. We were just showing some sights to them, and it's just fascinating watching the people as they go in there because obviously it does give you a sense of awe when you walk in there. Yes, there should be a certain amount of reverence and respect for what has gone into there. And, and, and much that's in there and the stained glass and all that is, is glory to God. I, I look at that. That's right. That's scripture. This is, this is great. But people still cannot help but have to get into that altar area and give a little bow, do a little of this, right? They were doing it left and right. 
I was just going, oh, this is interesting. Because if I can just throw something up here, right, I'm, 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 I'm showing respect. I'm making myself right in some way. It's a cistern in a way, but it doesn't hold anything. God isn't looking at your little actions like that and saying, oh, good. Oh, okay. I'm glad you recognize this place is, is holy. Uh, you're good to go. Jesus certainly isn't. He's not even addressing the whole well comment. You're, are you better than our, our father Jacob? The answer is obviously no. And I love that Jesus is so patient with her. And he answers her questions very patiently. And look what he says in verse 13. Jesus answered and said to whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. <laughs> you know, Jacob is, is rightly honored. That's, that's true. But the fact that remains, you're going to drink this water and you're going to be back tomorrow. Right? I'm sure it's good water, but you're going to come again. Our cisterns that we make, that we try to hold water, we try to um, uh, work our way into God's grace, uh, work our way into his favor, there's nothing there when we get there. It's, it's, just, it's just empty. But isn't it hard work to go back and forth and get water? It is for this woman. It's hard work. He says, you're just going to be back again. And you do it over and over and over again. And work's salvation is hard work. And at the end of the day, you end up with an empty bucket. You end up with nothing. You're still thirsty. But water, water that Jesus is offering here provides continual satisfaction of the needs and desires. Look what he says. Whoever drinks of the water, verse 14, that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You know, people will come here and they'll draw water and they'll drink, but they'll be back again. They'll keep doing it. But I have a water to offer you that will satisfy your thirst forever. And how does that happen? He says, because inside you, it's going to spring up into a fountain. It's going to be a self-producing fountain inside. You're going to have water constantly, constantly flowing. Now, it is believed that this particular well, Jacob's well, um, it's referred to as a spring as well, so that it actually had a natural uh, spring, the base of it as, as well. And so maybe Jacob's well was, was sort of um, naturally you know, um, uh, filled by this and fed by this, this spring. And so Jesus is sort of even in some way referencing that. But here Jesus is saying, you know, in, in a very um, gentle way, you're working hard, you're working for these things, and... You're going to be back. I'm talking about something that is deeper. I'm talking about something that is going to uh, fill you from the inside. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit transforming her life and will meet all your needs and all your desires because your desires will be Christ's desires, right? That's, that's the believer. The life of a believer is understanding that the source of life, the source of life comes from God. When I try to find my source of fulfillment, my source in other things, aren't you still thirsty? Desperately. You just look at the world. You know, I hope that this will satisfy, and then it doesn't. and leaves us wanting. Okay, maybe this will be the thing I've been looking for. And it could be any number of things, even good things, but they leave us wanting. We are supposed to find all our fulfillment in him. He says, I'll give that to you. It'll be in there. If you want it, and look at her response in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. That sounds good at first. Okay, she wants it. But why does she want it? 
that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. (laughs) Is she getting it? Maybe not so much, huh? Not quite yet, at least. (laughs) She's responding as anyone blinded by sin in the world uh, would. It's primarily on a physical level. I'll be great if I don't ever have to thirst again. I'd love that. If I don't ever have to come to draw from this deep well, because remember she said it was deep. Again, that would be great. I would love that. She was ready to receive it if it would eliminate her daily physical struggles. Have you ever had conversations with people and they get to that point? They seem ready. They seem willing to accept the offer because it does appeal to their flesh in a certain way. This woman doesn't appear to understand the matter of spiritual transformation. She seems ready to accept his offer, but she has to understand two crucial issues. And I think these are so important for today because it's okay if people get to that point. It's okay. Jesus is okay, but he doesn't stop there. He actually presses the point. The two things that we must make sure people understand in sharing the gospel are these, the reality of their sin and their need for a savior. Those two things have, have to be met. They can want those things on a fleshly level. I'm sure I came to that. You know, I started there, but pushed past that and say, great, but this is really where it is, and this is really where it is. And that's where we see Jesus really coming to it because it seems like he's changing the subject here, right? She, she says, okay, I'm ready. I want the water because I don't want to have to come here and do this anymore. And what does he say? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Great, I'm glad you want it. Great. Why don't you get your husband to come here? And why is he doing that? There must be a lot of water. I got to get my strong husband to come and help me carry. Maybe Is that why he's doing it? Uh-uh. No. She has a sin issue here, and he's, it's her deepest sin issue. It's actually the reason that she's the outcast of the area. It's the reason she's coming to draw water at noon because she's a moral woman, right? She's in an immoral relationship. And Jesus is very gently presenting that to her and allowing her to answer. Go get your husband. Have him come here. I love it. Salvation is, is being offered. Uh, he's, he's offering it to her. She's saying, I want it. And, and that's offered to everyone. But it only comes to those who forsake their sin and follow. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7 says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It is true. You have to take all of Scripture. The Lord will be found. You can call upon him, absolutely, but you have to forsake your sin. You have to forsake unrighteous thoughts. God will have mercy on us when we recognize um, we're wicked, we're sinful, we're fallen. And scripture nowhere teaches salvation without repentance. It doesn't happen. You don't find it. It's everywhere. I want to take you to a couple places real quick. In Acts chapter 26, if you're in the book of John, it's just the next book over to the right. Acts chapter 26, verses 19 and 20. Acts 26, verses 19 and 20. Paul is before King Agrippa, if you remember, and he's just shared his salvation story. He's just shared his conversion account on the road to Damascus, right? The risen Savior uh, uh, called me. In Acts chapter 26, verses 19 and 20, this is what he says. This is after his conversion. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, 
but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Do you see that? I I declared, this is what I declared. I told them they needed to repent. I I told them they needed to turn to God. So repent is, is to stop going that way and now go that way to God, right? And then do works befitting repentance. Live a life that shows you indeed have repented, which is far beyond a prayer, isn't it? It's far beyond saying, okay, I just asked the Lord in my heart. He is saying, no, you turn. He is your master now. You go that way and you live a life that shows that you really have repented. It's very clear. It's very clear. And that's just in one little scenario uh, there. Let me take you to Romans chapter 6. Keep going to the right. Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is sort of um, arguing uh, the, the fact that, yes, grace came to us because we were sinners, but he's, he's looking ahead at who could argue back on that. And it's someone who would say, okay, well, if grace beca- comes because we sin, maybe we should sin more so we can get some more grace, right? And so he's, he's trying to like, argue that ridiculous notion in chapter 6, in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? No, absolutely not. You, why? Because you've died to sin. If you died to sin, why would you live in it anymore? Obviously, you wouldn't. Skip on to verse 11. Look at verses 11 through 14. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And then skip down to verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Hmm. You, you've died to sin, and so your members, your body, now don't present to sin. Don't allow it to be an instrument of sin. Let it be an instrument in God's hands, an instrument that he will use for righteousness. And what's the end of that? He said, that's everlasting life. So the reality is many people are, are deceived. It's just about an easy believism, just just say, I believe in Jesus. Absolutely, you have to believe in Jesus. But that belief is backed up by a life that shows you believe it. I can say I love my wife all day long, but if I live life that you know shows her I don't, is she ever going to believe me? Absolutely not. Why would we expect anything less of a holy and perfect God? But we do. We do. Go back to John here, because we're going to see how Jesus responds uh, to all this and how the woman responds. He's just told her to go get her husband. (laughs) And look what she says, verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Now, the woman was not lying. She, you know, completely, but she wasn't telling the whole truth either, was she? She didn't have a husband, but what Jesus wanted was total uh, honesty here. Jesus knew her situation, right? That's why he said that. Go call your husband. Maybe this will bring it out. 
He doesn't get a, let her get away with the half-truth, but he unmasks her, her sin. And, um, you know, I think in today's world, too, where, where even so, so-called Christians are willing to live in, in sin, it's probably worth even noting, just taking a moment to note this, that by refusing to call the man that she lived with her husband, Jesus doesn't call her, um, uh, refusing to call that, he's rejecting the notion that merely living together constitutes marriage. He called her that. You're right, I don't have a husband. But I'll tell you, our world would say quite the opposite, and even Christians today just get duped into like, well, yeah, I mean, that's just culturally what we do. And we live our lives culturally according to the culture. But that's what happened with the, the, the Israelites and the Samaritans, right? They brought in their false idols, that became the culture, and so they just lived culturally. And pretty soon you find yourself in idolatry. And I'm just, I'm mindful that if we just are faithful to, to, to preach God's word, the Holy Spirit does the work. People who participate in in that kind of arrangement where they're just living together and playing house, they are are living in sin. And the reason is that relationship, that arrangement, um, it seeks all the benefits of God's institution with zero responsibility. None of the responsibility. I get everything I want in this relationship, but I'm not responsible or accountable to anyone. I've made no vows before anyone. I've made no promise to you. So I can get what I want, when I want, how I want. It's a situation that caters to love of self and meeting my needs, and it knows nothing of the sacrificial love required in marriage. And in faithfully just teaching God's word, I will tell you, the last church we were in is a large church. Obviously, I don't know people's living situations all over. I, you know, there was tons of people. But I can tell you several occasions, couples would come up to us after service and say, you know what, we had no idea. We were, li- we're living in sin. We've been living together. We do- what do we do? I will tell you, that is repentance. What do we do? Okay, come in. Let's talk. Meet with them. You need to get married, or you need to not live together. And I'll tell you, on both occasions, one couple moved out from each other, and that, they got a marriage license, and that Sunday, I married them in the chapel, just, just them and their kids. The other couple that this happened, you know, these are years apart, right, came the next day. We married them in the hallway of the church office. We got the office staff together as the witnesses. But you know what? That was a glorious wedding. Why? Repentance. We want to honor God. We will do whatever it takes. There was ignorance there. They did not realize that they were living in sin, that that was not something God was happy about. He said, do you want God's blessing? you want God's favor to be upon you? You've got to live according to his way, right? We, we want God's blessing. We want his favor in our lives. But many times we're just unwilling to do it by God's way. When we do it by God's way, we get the blessings. So here, he's calling to her account here. He's calling her out on her sin. And look at her response. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's a good perception there, right? I think you'd have to come to some kind of conclusion there because he knows much about you. But her response is somewhat baffling there. I don't know that I can identify repentance yet. I think she's close. But look at verse 20. It's even a little bit more confusing. It seems like she changes the subject now. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She's been confronted with sin, but I think what's happened here, this is sort of an intellectual red herring, a distraction. Have you ever been in that situation in witnessing? Like All of a sudden, the subject has changed. Like, well, but, but Christianity, so many people believe different things, right? You're far different than the Baptists or the Methodists or the, you know, and then all of a sudden, we're talking about something completely different. Jesus doesn't go down this rabbit trail. 
at all. He's like, that's garbage, (laughs) right? She's just changed it. But she has highlighted one of the major points of contention between the Jews and Samaritans, and that was the center of worship because, like I said, the Samaritans believed they could worship on uh, one mountain, Mount Gerizim, and the Jews, obviously, the Old Testament. By the way, where that comes from is Samaritans believe in the Pentateuch only, the first five books of the Bible. So you're not going to find Jerusalem really as being the, the center, are you? in those first five books of the Bible. But Mount Gerizim is there, so they take Mount Gerizim. The Jews obviously believe in all of the Old Testament canon, and that clearly recognizes Jerusalem as the place uh, uh, where he is to be worshipped. So Jesus answers her question, but he doesn't let her off the hook. So he does correct her here. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, right? He says that. He's like, well, actually, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong on that, but that's not the point. Look what he says in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you're neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Worship the Father. He's like, you know what? That's a great argument. It doesn't matter because there's a time coming, and the time coming he's speaking of is after his death. It doesn't matter where you worship. I don't care what mountain you do on, what closet you hide in. All right? You're going to worship in a different way. You're going to worship the Father, and it's not going to be contingent on where. But you don't, you don't worship what you don't. Right? He does correct her. Uh, salvation is of... Uh, the, the Jews. He's saying it's irre- irre- irrelevant, really. And how is salvation of the Jews, by the way? Is he saying that we're better, we're more favored? No, no. The gospel came to them first and the rest of the world, right? That's, that's what he's talking about. The Messiah comes through the Jews. That's what he's speaking of. Paul said that, I believe in the power of the gospel for it's the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, because it came through the Jews. But, It's the power of the gospel for all who believe. There's no favoritism here. So we'll get to the end of this. He says this, the hour is coming, verse 23, and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now spirit there doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit. Spirit refers to the human spirit. You, you. Because you're talking about worshiping on some mountain in some ceremonial way. God isn't concerned about that. You know what God wants you to worship him with? You. (laughs) Because when you're worshiping because it's a a place or it's a thing and you're, oh, this is a holy building, I'm going to do this. God doesn't care about that. He wants you to worship you with you. (laughs) Worship the spirit, worship God with your spirit. God is spirit. He's not an exalted man. He is the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. True worship emanates from the inner spirit, but also in truth. The knowledge of God that's been revealed about him in scripture, not what I think God is, right? Or what I hope him to be, but what scripture reveals him to be. That's what he's talking about. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So this is what the woman says, verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. <laughs> I love it. I think somewhat confused, maybe wanting to delay repentance a little bit further. The excuse here is, well, one day the Messiah is going to come and he's just going to clear it all up. I mean, that sounds good, but you know, maybe you're wrong on this. The Messiah will come. And he'll, he'll just clear it all up. I don't know uh, 
what else Jesus could have said at this point other than what he says. He's like, okay, okay. If, if that's it, because sometimes when you have these conversations, you have to kind of go with the arguments a bit, don't you? Okay, I'll answer that. Okay, I'll answer it. Okay, so you'll be convinced if the Messiah tells you. Great, okay. I who speak to you am he. <laughs> in fact, in the Greek, in the Greek, it literally is I who speak to you am. It's an I am statement. I am. Boom. He drops it on her. I'm, I'm the Messiah. I am the Messiah. Now, you're going to have to wait till next week to see how she responds. <laughs> but there's a couple of things I want you to take from this because I think we have a lot to learn. There are three non-negotiable truths of salvation, and all three are illustrated in this passage today. They're non-negotiables. Okay, there's a lot of things that are negotiable. It's okay if you don't believe the same thing about this. So when people go, oh, well, all Christians don't believe, you know, don't go down the rabbit trail. Say, okay, but I'll tell you what, true Christians do believe three things. Three things. So write these down. You like the rabbit trail, apparently. You don't say rabbit trail here. What, what do you say? Bunny trail. I don't know. Number one, salvation only comes to those who recognize their need for spiritual life. It's those who are spiritually thirsty. Living water comes to those who are thirsty. That's a non-negotiable truth. You must come to a place where you recognize your need, your need for spiritual life. If I don't recognize I actually need it, then what have I been saved from? I don't really need it. I can add it. Maybe I can add a, a, a religion to my life because there's actually, you know, there's good things and there's benefits and there's fellowship. Okay, great. But that's not salvation. That's fellowship. That's community. But it's not salvation. I must recognize my need for spiritual life. I have to have that. I have to have it. Because without that, I've got a broken cistern and it's got nothing in it. <laughs> I have to recognize that. Number two, non-negotiable truth. Salvation only comes to those who confess and repent of their sin. That's the other thing that's hard to do, isn't it? Salvation only comes to those who confess and repent. So the need must be realized. Okay, I need uh, this, I am spiritually bankrupt, but I also recognize that that means I am um, I'm living my own life. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to earn my way on my own merit. And so I've got to confess that and, and recognize I need to live according to God's standard. Listen, you won't be able to. Can I just tell you right now? You know why? You're not perfect. God's standard is perfection. So you can't do it. You're like, oh, great. That's not good news. It is good news. It is good news because there is one who has lived perfectly, and there is one who can do it for you and has done it for you, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's the third point, that you must embrace Jesus as your sin bearer, as your way to God. Jesus became sin for us, right, that we might become the righteousness of of God in him. That's how that works. I, I cannot create my own righteousness as much good as I do or giving or attending church or all those things. They're just works. They don't earn me God's grace and his favor. The three non-negotiables are what we must stick to. But I hope you notice as well that as Jesus interacted with this woman, he was very compassionate don't, don't, don't lose compassion. Here was a woman that everyone else would have avoided. Who are those people today? 
who are those people for you as a Christian? Like, I'd just rather not interact with someone like that. When we think that way, aren't we really becoming kind of like the standard Jew? Uh, I just might get a little defiled, right? They're just a little too far gone. Listen, there's not too far gone. There's just gone, <laughs> right? There's just lost. And I was lost, but now I'm found. And you too. And so will you not put up a barrier for people between you and you? You're not better than them. They're just lost. Be compassionate. Number two, tell the truth. Tell the truth there. Jesus was compassionate, but he brought her to the truth. Ultimately, woman, you're trying to find satisfaction in your relationships. You've had five of them. And now you're on number six and you're living immorally. You're not even married. At this point, you've just given up, <laughs> right? Uh, I can see where this road goes. You're just going to keep coming back to the well. And you're going home thirsty. Don't do that. Christ offers us everlasting life. He's the living water. And that is spiritual life, eternal life, but also it is abundant life here and now. You actually live life with a purpose. You live life with pleasure and joy because the fountain is alive and well in you. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the compassionate and merciful God that you are. I just know my own heart. Had I met this woman at the well in, those day, in that day, in that time, I probably would have ignored her. It is difficult for us to avoid the social barriers that are up in this world, we tend to just align ourselves to one side or the other. But God, you've called us to be compassionate and merciful people because you are compassionate and merciful. To be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we can't be perfect, but we can sure try to be. <laughs> we can seek to be as much like you in our lives as we can. It's not without sin. It's not to perfection but we desire to do it because you've given us a heart to love people. And I thank you for the example of how the gospel is shared here so faithfully. It is about loving people. It is about being compassionate to them. It is about meeting them where they are, yeah. but it is not without calling them to the carpet about sin. That's right. they, must, they must face that because if they don't, we have not guided them That's to anything. Right. We have simply loved them, but we haven't pointed them to truth. And they won't experience the living water that they desperately need. So, Lord, would you just help us? Lord, it's so difficult. I uh, just pray that you'd empower us by your spirit to be compassionate, loving people, but bold as well as we share the gospel to those who desperately need it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.